Hey, good morning, Park RP. Good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. As John said, if this is your first time here um, with us, we are glad that you are here, whether this is your first time or your second time or your third time, we're glad um, that you're here with us. If, and I would love actually to even sit down and meet with you and get to know you more, hear more of your story. Um, my name is Phil Adams. I serve as the, the pastor here at Park Rogers Park. So please come up at the end. I hope I'm not too scary in any way. So please come up and I'd love to get to know you uh, more. We are in a series working through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, right now in this season of the church. Um, so if you've got a Bible there, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read it in a few moments. If you were here last week, Jamie, Jamie gave us a message that included um, a stark uh, warning, a uh, warning to us as a church, as, 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 as a people, um, that even though there may not be physical literal idols that we worship in the majority of our homes, and yet still idolatry is very much real and very much still exists. And to help us formulate an understanding of idolatry as the replacement of God, Jamie pointed out last week that that which we seek to rescue us in life, that which we seek to rescue us in life, is that which we are treating functionally as our God. Maybe you're here today and you're realizing that you have been replacing God in your life for a while now. If we are finding our hope and our peace and our rest in anything other than God, we are finding our hope and our rest and our peace in an idol. So some questions for you. Is it your money and your retirement plan that helps you to sleep at night or God's hand of care and protection over your life? Is it your career, your giftedness, or your circumstances that give you a sense of hope into the future, or trusting in God's good and sovereign plan for your life? Has your devotion been given to sex or drugs or spending rather than he who formed you and knows you with all lasting joy and contentment to be found in a relationship with him? God says, come to me. Hope in me. Rest in me. Find joy and peace and satisfaction in my love for you. And we say, mm, not today. Not in this moment. In this moment, I am going to swipe that credit card one more time. I'm going to click on that website all over again. I'm going to tear, tear others down to build myself up because in this immediate moment, I'm betting on a replacement of God rather than God himself to satisfy a void in my life. And in case you thought we were going to get all light and fluffy this morning, you maybe already realized that we're, we're, we're not, that we aren't. Rather, what we're going to consider today is actually that there is something far more sinister than the idols in our lives, which is lurking behind the idols in our lives. If I was to ask you when you think of your family and your friends or your spouse or your girlfriend or your boy boyfriend, if I was to ask you what memories do you have that you most cherish with them, what would you think of? Or what memories do you have of when you were with those that you love that you made you feel most clearly that you belong together in that moment? A time when you knew this family is truly my family. This person is truly my person. These people are truly my people. And I am theirs. These, these moments you maybe think are, are, are rare, 
in a world with so much brokenness and dysfunction, but they exist when we feel, in a sense, that the stars have aligned, so to say, and we think it is here with these people or this person out of all the other eight billion people in the world with whom I am home. It is with you, you singular, a spouse, a child, or you plural, my friends, my family, my church, with whom I was made to be. And if you've been graced with these kind of moments in your life, I would suspect that many of these moments in your life have occurred around a meal. I can still remember my my nanny French, my grandmother, my mother's mother, she would fondly giggle and call me a tinker. You can ask me what that means after church. She would make me hot milk in a saucepan before bed. I can still remember my Sunday afternoon duty of mashing potatoes before Sunday lunch. I can still remember the dimly lit Argentinian steakhouse in Brooklyn when Ruth and I were on our honeymoon. It was good. It was good steak. Wow. There is something about a, a meal that brings us, people, humanity, together. And more than that, there is something that occurs during meals that binds us together. But this binding and this communion occurs not only through meals. Today's passage, just like last week, is, a, is another warning, a warning that there may be metaphorical tables in our lives at which we are sitting and we think the food is oh so good and the conversation is oh so rich and there is wine and it's flowing and the company is magnetic and we are in love and yet unbeknown to us, we are not sitting with a friend. Rather, we are binding ourselves, entangling ourselves, communing with a foe. Behind what we seem to think is innocent sits one who is insidiously desiring in no way our good. And rather than putting down our glass of wine and then fleeing and running, we are ignorantly feeling that the stars have aligned here in this moment around this table of destruction. We think that is where we're meant to be. So let's read our passage this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read from verses 14 to 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 to 22. And it says this. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray before we look at this passage, and if you would like to, please raise your hands with me as we pray. God, we come before you now in this place, in this space, God, and we just acknowledge, God, that we are dependent on you and your voice to speak into our lives. God, you know the week that we have had, you know the things that have happened to us, you know the thoughts that we have had. God, you know the struggles that we have had, God, and we come here into this place, God, knowing, God, that you are here amongst your people. So, God, we invite you to speak into our lives. We surrender ourselves to you, God. Would you uh, give us humility? God, would you give us meekness and tenderness to hear your voice today, I pray in your name. Amen. Our passage today opens with with these words. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And the first thing we notice is that Paul, what Paul is writing here is written from a genuine place of, of love 
to those that he is writing to. He says, therefore, my beloved. We see Paul's pastoral heart that he is seeking spiritual formation. He is seeking spiritual transformation in the lives of those he loves. As I teach this morning, this is to be an act of love. And part of Paul's love for his readers is is being straight with them, being direct with them. He tells them, flee idolatry. Do not linger. Do not wait. Do not entertain it. Run. Then he says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say, which is Paul's way of saying, common sense will tell you, is going to tell you that I'm right, but I'm going to explain it anyway. Then in verse 16, maybe surprisingly in a sense, he begins to talk about the Lord's table or communion. If you've been part of our our church for a while, you will know that we join together in the Lord's table as we will today, usually every other week or so. When those of us who are followers of Christ, we come up to the front, we partake of the bread and the wine representing Christ's body given for us and Jesus' blood shed for us. And we do this not because... It's a kind of idea that we have thought up for ourselves. And we don't do this because it's a kind of come-to-be tradition that's just come about within Christianity. The incredible thing about communion is that if we were to track followers of Jesus back through the centuries, we would find them across every continent of the world gathered as local bodies of believers around the bread and the wine like endless streams flowing backwards across time, streams passing through the 18th century and the 14th century and the 10th century and the 8th century and the 5th and the 4th and the 3rd and the 2nd century, streams flowing right back into one room around one table where one man, Jesus of Galilee, sat at arm's length with his disciples, maybe shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye, and said to them, do this in remembrance of me. And so 2,000 years later in Rogers Park, when we partake together in communion, we are reenacting a meal, a meal that was first had with Jesus and his disciples, with the incarnate, physically present, word made flesh as the host at the head of the table looking across the table into the eyes of this ragtag bunch of those that he had encountered and called to follow him. But we ask, why is Paul talking about communion? Why does he, he, he pivot from the subject of idolatry to that of communion? What's the connection between idolatry and the Lord's table? That's what we're going to be seeking to understand today. First, we need to see that Paul here in verse 16 of chapter 10, he's picking up again on a subject matter he was talking about back in chapter 8. If you can remember back to chapter 8, Paul was addressing the issue of whether Christians in Corinth should eat food offered to idols. It would have been customary for those of other belief systems in Corinth to sacrifice animals to their idols and then sell the meat or to eat the meat themselves. And so there were Christians who thought because the idols aren't even real that there's no problem eating the food that is offered to these not real idols. And then on the other hand, there were those who just could not conceive of eating food that had ever been offered to a pagan idol. And this isn't our our, our typical everyday issue for most of us, but the application that Paul draws out in chapter 8 still stands for us. If you remember, Paul's first comments on the subject weren't really about whether eating the food in and of itself was right or wrong. He gets to that this week. Paul's first concern was with how the church was treating those they disagreed with. And that's applicable. Paul's first concern was that the church was being a community that cared well for one another, that sees and listens and is empathetic and compassionate towards one another. 
And this is where there is a good aside for us. I don't want us to be a church that, that, that misses this. Paul's first concern was how people were treating those that they disagreed with. And his second concern was who was actually right or wrong. Paul's first concern was how people were treating those that they disagreed with. His second concern was who was actually right or wrong. Hence, there is a caution here for us to remember when we deeply believe that we are right about something, and maybe we are right, but the caution is that being right never serves as permission to place the fruit of the Spirit in a position of secondary importance. Our engagement with others is to the best of our ability to be seasoned always with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. But the ironic thing in our passage is that those whom Paul calls out for arrogance in their perceived rightness in chapter 8, verse 1, it was they whom were actually wrong. They had sized up the situation wrongly. The conclusions that they were making were incorrect. We see this because now in chapter 10, Paul goes on to directly address the singular issue of whether at the end of the day the Christians should eat the food offered to idols or not. And his answer is no, that they shouldn't. And in formulating his answer, Paul wants his readers to consider for a moment what occurs at the Lord's table. Paul is building out a logical response to the question of eating food offered to idols by by comparing one meal to another meal. Paul asks two rhetorical questions for them to, to consider in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And the key word in these two questions is participation. In fact, this word participation is the key word in this whole passage. It's used four times between verses 14 and verse 22. So what does it mean, participation? The great word that is translated for participation is koinonia. And this Greek word koinonia has a really rich depth of meaning. It comes from the root word koinos, meaning common, as in something commonly shared and held. It's the, this word koinos that we get the prefix ko, as in co-worker or co-participant, referring to a joint or shared experience. In Philippians 4.15, Paul uses this word koinonia in reference to the fellowship formed in mutually giving and receiving. Hence, in the King James translation of the Bible, that word participation in verse 16, is translated as communion, the idea of sharing that which is possessed in common. And so if we wrap these layers of meaning together, Paul is saying during the Lord's table, in partaking of the cup of the bread, in our participation, we are engaging in a shared experience of giving and receiving. In simple terms, the Lord's table is a moment of relational intimacy between yourself and another. It is to be the, enacted, the enactment of a cherished memory, one when you come to know another is truly yours and you are truly theirs. Participating in the Lord's table is entering into the binding intimacy that occurs when we share a meal with another. That's what Paul first wants the church in Corinth to remember occurs during the Lord's table, this binding intimacy. Then verse 17, verse 18, he builds this out further. Verse 17 reads, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. As we come forward to partake in communion, as we are going to do so shortly, we all take a piece of the same bread, 
to engage in a moment of oneness as a church. Reminding ourselves that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are one people sharing in a moment of common experience around Christ, which in verse 18, Paul points to as the experience of Israel as a people, the experience that Israel had in the Old Testament. It was during secret meals and secret festivals that they were bound together as a nation. Can I tell you something that I love about when we take the Lord's table as a church? Something I love is how it serves as an incredible equalizer. The simplicity of the elements in the Lord's table, they make it truly accessible for all of us. We may be speaking in in English today. I may be speaking too fast. I'm working on that. (laughs) Oh, I thought I was doing better. We may be singing songs of a particular tradition. We may be teaching in a particular cultural style. Yet regardless of the degree to which different elements in our service today inevitably communicate different degrees of belonging to different people, when it comes to the Lord's table, we are reminded through the bread and through the wine that we all belong here. Communion is what we've got. It's what Christ left us with. The most concrete, actionable instructions by which we are to remember him by and be with him through. And in its its accessibility, the Lord's table is an incredible equalizer. Let's jump back into the passage. In verse 19, Paul himself says, what do I imply then? It's always helpful when the Bible makes us feel better for asking what is going on. Paul asks himself, okay, so what am I trying to say? And this is where, again, we remember Paul is answering the question whether the Christians in Corinth should eat the food offered to idols. And he's saying, no, that they shouldn't. And he's explaining his answer through comparing one meal to another. He suggests, am I saying that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Which he quickly follows up and says, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that. As in, he agrees with those eating the food offered to idols that the food in and of itself means nothing and the idols as pieces of metal or pieces of clay mean nothing. He agrees the idols aren't of significance. But then in verse 20, he drops this kind of, kind of bombshell and he says, I do though imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Then listen to this, the second half of verse 20, and remember the key word that we're we're thinking about. Verse 20, Paul says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. And this is like, demons? I thought we were talking about idols. For the Christians in Corinth, idols were, were made up stories. Idols were figures molded by human hands that could not talk or speak or do anything. For us, idols, are they not just good things in our secular, disenchanted society which we use to replace God, our money, or our careers, or our relationships? Are we not just replacing God through indulging in our appetites for sex, or drugs, or spending? God says, come to me, hope in me, rest in me, find joy and satisfaction in me, and my love for you, be patient in waiting for me, and we say, not today. Not in this moment. But we're to 
demons come into it. This is key. The Christians in Corinth who were happy eating the food offered to idols did so because they thought the idols had no power. And Paul is saying, hang on, the idols per se aren't my concern. My concern is the powers at work through the idols. My concern is who is lurking behind the idols. My concern is not what you are eating, but who you are eating with. Paul understood that when we come to the Lord's table, it is a time of relational intimacy between yourself and another. And so in the same way, the idols in our lives are a meal that's set before us, and as we partake in a diet of greed or sexual immorality or drunkenness, yes, we may try to eat a little healthier, but what we often feel to remember in our partaking of idolatry is that we are forming intimacy, connection. We are opening ourselves up in communion with spiritual forces that seek our destruction and at minimum our distraction from intimacy with the God who loves us. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And this communing is binding, it's entangling, it's enslaving. I want to speak today to those of us who have been lured by a metaphorical table that once maybe seemed oh so innocent that gave you that oh so good feeling that the stars have aligned, but that which has now entangled you and enchained you. Some of us are here today and you want to flee idolatry. But it feels like there's a a leash around your neck. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, debt. What do you do? Jimmy said it last week. I'll say it again. It's maybe not what you want to hear. If you feel bound in a pattern of sin, you tell someone. You tell someone. Tell someone you trust. Tell someone you know to be trustworthy. And if you have no one that feels safe, but you know something in your life needs to change, my number is 872. 600 2783. And if you don't want to write it down, it's going to be on Spotify tomorrow morning. <laughs> Keep it close, don't give it too far. But seriously, if you think I can help, if you have no one else to talk to, no one else you think could listen or understand, give me a call. If you're a teenager, I assure you in telling your parents or in telling another follower of Christ, you will be loved and you'll be understood far more than you realize. Spices, can I tell you if your spice comes to you today, tonight, tomorrow, because they're caught in a cycle of sin, I implore you to stay calm listen to them, do what you can to create a safe place of repentance in your marriage, pray 
honestly together, both of you. Remember your marriage vows exist for a time such as this. Remember your spice is more than their brokenness. Consider together whether you need to bring someone else in to navigate the situation. Consider a safe person you may need to talk to for your own sake and remind yourself time and time and time again of the gospel that there exists a pathway towards healing and restoration. But do not suffer in silence. After you have told a deacon, a friend, a spouse, an elder, your, your, your small group leader, what then? Look at verse 21. It says this. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord and the table of demons. You just can't. You got to choose your intimacy. You got to choose who you want to walk closely with. Paul implores them that a choice needs to be made. It's like going to get a marriage license to be married to two different people and at the counter they say, no, we don't have the forms for that. That's just not an option. If you you marry one, you can't marry another. You you need to choose. So who's it going to be? Every day, every week, time and time again, who's it going to be? In our passage today, Paul compares one meal to another. And back in verse 16, Paul says, the cup at the Lord's table is a cup of blessing which means the cup has been given a particular purpose that Christ appointed to it for our benefit, to be a blessing. And this is when we remember that the bread and the cup are more than just symbols of something that has happened, but when we partake at the Lord's table, something in that moment is presently, truly happening. We are feeding ourselves, not physically, but we're feeding ourselves spiritually. There is a communion that's occurring. Through faith, there is an intimacy, a giving and a receiving that's occurring when we come to the front and we partake in the Lord's table. And just as present as the bread and cup are physically here this morning is Christ, the host, present with us spiritually. That's the point. As we are offered the bread and the cup, Christ is here, reaching across the table, offering us as the host to partake once again through faith in receiving all the benefits that are ours to receive through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. Church, Jesus went to the cross knowing that hanging in our place would be a done, once, once, done, forever done kind of substitution. In Christ, through faith, through our receiving of him, we stand forever forgiven, understood forever, seen forever, whole forever, accepted forever, loved forever, adopted forever, cleansed forever. We stand before God blameless forever. And you know what else? We stand before God victorious forever. Romans 8 says that we are more than conquerors. And we say, hi, I'm an addict, I'm stuck, I'm enchained. How am I more than a conqueror? Rogers Park, Jesus didn't just die for sin, Jesus beat sin. He rejected it. He said no to it. 
He stared it down until it crept away into the darkness so that his victory would be your victory. When Jesus allowed himself to go through the chains of sin still, that would still seek to take us in Jesus going to his death through the power of his love, Jesus broke the chains of sin for us, for you. Why? So that when we've had another week of being fooled by sin's false promises, we'll be able to come again and again and again and again to Jesus and see his heart of compassion and feed ourselves, not with the lies of the enemy, but with the truth that in Christ we're free. If you have given your life to Jesus, the chains of sin have fallen from you. Your future is no longer determined by your failures, but God's forgiveness. And hear this, as we feed on our victory that is ours in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work within us, we are empowered to live free. Hope for change is hope that comes from outside of us through the Holy Spirit, now who dwells within us. And that's the Christian life, not seeking to free ourselves from sin in our own strength, but the Christian life is remembering our freedom has already been granted. The challenge is then to live with the Holy Spirit's help to live as we already are, free. And what makes this possible is remembering and remembering and remembering, week on week, remembering that in your persevering and in your stumbling and in your falling and your getting back up, you are loved. You are loved. You're already loved. You will be forever loved. And so in a moment, I want to invite you to come and feed on Christ's love for you. To take it in, to savor it for another week. Come take the bread, which is Christ's body, given for you. Dip it in the cup, which is Christ's blood, shed for your sins. Come this morning and have a meal with Jesus. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would make this gathering, this people, a place of safety, a place of healing, a place of transformation. God, I pray that you would make our our small groups places of safety and healing and transformation. God, I pray for the synergy between this gathering and our small gatherings, God, that you would make as a whole people and a whole community of safety and healing and transformation. God, we invite you now to be at work in our hearts. God, I pray that we would choose you. And God, I pray that as we choose you, God, we would know that we are free. That then you may tell us that we are enslaved, that we are enchained, and change cannot happen, that change is impossible. God, we know and we acknowledge, God, today that change is possible by the power of your Holy Spirit within us. And so, God, I pray that we'll pursue holiness. And God, I pray that we'll pursue it together. I pray, God, that we will seek prayer. I pray that we will seek counsel and we will seek guidance, God. Would you give us the humility? Would you give us the courage, God, to pursue what we need? And I pray, God, that we would be a listening people, a gracious people, a humble people together as we pursue you. Do that amongst us. God, may we experience you now and your love in the Lord's table that you are here. In Jesus' name.